1: Produced by the iLab at WBUR Boston.
0: Hi, this is Cheryl. Just a word of warning. We wanted to let you know that we'll be discussing intimate partner violence on this episode. The universe has good news for the lost, lonely, and heartsick. The sugars are here, speaking straight into your ears.
1: I'm Steve Allman.
0: I'm Cheryl Strayed.
1: This is Dear Sugars. Oh, dear song, won't you please Share some little sweetness
0: So, Steve, when I was 13, I met a uh, young man who was like 23 or 24, and he was uh, staying nearby. He was like visiting a family in the community uh, where I grew up, and he was an adult, but young. Mm -hmm. You know, he's in his early 20s, right? and my sister and I, the first time we saw him, we just began laughing in hysterics yeah. the way that, like, you know, teenage girls do because he was cute. And I remember he was wearing, uh you know, these Levi jeans and this tight white tank top and he was very tan. and He was just devastatingly handsome mm-hmm. to our eyes. And so we both immediately had a crush on him. And um, we at first could hardly bear to look him in the eye or say anything to him without giggling because we, we had that kind of young girl Um, sort of crush infatuation feeling. Mm -hmm. But over time, we got to know him, and he was this really cool guy. right? And he started to really um, develop a friendship with us, even though my sister and I were younger than him. And I was a full decade younger than him. I didn't even have my period yet. I was just wearing a little training bra and had Mm -hmm. just this little, you know, tiny breasts. And um, I was still very much a little girl. And at the time, I had this T-shirt that was this orange T-shirt that had um, Reese's Peanut Butter Cups candy bar on Mm -hmm. the front. And I loved that T-shirt because I loved Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. I still to this day do. And um, I I came walking up to this young man one day when I was wearing this T-shirt, and we were kind of off alone. Other people couldn't hear what we were saying to each other. And I'll never forget the way he looked at me and with a kind of seriousness... And he said, I would like to taste those cups. And I didn't know what he was talking about. I was so young and innocent. Mm -hmm. It didn't occur to me um, what he was saying, but I knew what he was saying made me uncomfortable. And I sort of stammered and said, what? And he said, I would like to taste your cups, you know, your cups. And then I realized he was saying, he was talking about my breasts. Mm -hmm. And it, it was such an excruciating moment for me because i realized a lot of things all at once and the first one was that that he had a crush on me too yeah which is what you'd think you wanted in that situation right or maybe in some way what i thought i wanted was you know i if i had a crush on someone that i wanted them to have a crush on me in return but at the same time that i realized that he did have a crush on me i realized that i was completely and utterly terrified by the prospect of him actually wanting me. Because my wanting him wasn't real. It was innocent. It was about uh, me really just barely moving into a sense of myself as a sexual being. Um, And it was really about admiring somebody who I thought, you know, that I could hold at a distance. That his, his adulthood protected him from... Me and my childhood protected me from him. Yeah, I, I felt that that was there, and and um, what happened is he sullied that barrier. Um, he proceeded to sort of flirt with me and ask me out. He wanted to get me to go, you know, into the woods with him, or right. you know, get off on a sort of strange little date. And I remember just being absolutely terrified and horrified and embarrassed and ashamed. And I avoided him, and nothing more happened. But I was always scarred by that. I always felt like something had been taken from me. Mm-hmm. And and what I've come to understand as an adult is that he had a job, <laughs> and that was to be a grown-up, you know, to be gentle with me and my crush, and to laugh it off, and to be kind to me, but not to reciprocate, right? not to cross that line. And it took me a long time before I could— um, Really, think of that clearly and 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 not think that I was in some ways asking for it or culpable in my own potential victimization when you know somebody like the thirteen year old me is saying, "Hey, I like this guy, you're cute, I have a crush on you um what responsibility did I have then when he returned it mm-hmm. and and you know, I think this is this story emerged in my mind really in the wake of all of these people telling stories about their sexual past and the, the various interactions they've had with men um, when it comes to men who have different kinds of power, whether it be an age difference or an economic difference or, a, a you know, some professional uh, power. And it also burbled up when I was reading the letter that we're going to discuss today on this mm-hmm. episode. Yeah. Because there is, um, you know, so much gray area when there is that differential in power. And the ultimately wronged party, in this case me, was somebody who initially incited this kind of exchange. You know, I began the crush. And I think it has everything to do with consent. Because, of course, at 13, even though I knew how I felt and I, my body was my own and I had my own ideas and I could make some decisions— There are some that that I couldn't make for myself, Mm -hmm. you know, that I didn't have the power to have a consensual relationship with an adult.
1: That's right. And last week we really began uh, our exploration of what consent means, the complexity and nuance of that term, and how it operates between us and within us. We, we, we started into the gray. This week, we're going to deal with a long and complicated and bruising letter, frankly, um, from one who's really stuck in that gray area. And like you, Cheryl, is returning to a particular moment in her sexual history that has profoundly and devastatingly affected her life and continues to.
0: Will you read the letter, Steve?
1: I shall. Dear Sugars, I'm a 30-something queer woman. I happily live with my partner and am profoundly in love with her, but having fully liberated sex with her, and any other partner for that matter, has always been difficult. When I was 22 and coming into my queer sexuality, I had a terrible sexual encounter with my brother-in-law, which was, in essence, how I lost my virginity. My sister and her husband are 11 years my senior, and they'd been married since they were 18. My sister was like a second mother to me growing up. Her husband, who I've known since I was seven, had always been like an older brother figure to me. At the time of this encounter, my brother-in-law and my sister were separated because my brother-in-law found out that my sister had been having a prolonged affair. I was caught in the middle." During their separation, I was home from school for the summer. My sister and her husband took turns watching their children at their house, where I regularly hung out. My brother-in-law was there with them often because my sister was working long hours, and during this time he and I became closer. We smoked pot and drank like friends. I opened up to him about my newfound queer sexuality, and he, to me, about his heartbreak. The more vulnerable we were with one another, the more I developed feelings for him. One night, while we were drinking and smoking, I told him I had a crush on him. This was the point of no return. I led him into the basement of their home where their kids were sleeping and kissed him. He didn't resist. He very much welcomed it. I still don't know what the hell I was thinking. Clearly, I wasn't. We continued to hang out without any further intimacy until one night he offered to drive me home and while we were on the way, I asked if I could see the apartment where he stayed during the separation when my sister was at their house. Part of me was genuinely curious to see where he was living, but another part of me wanted to take things further between us. When he parked the car outside of his apartment, he started to kiss and touch me. I told him that it was wrong and that we shouldn't do this, He persisted, and soon we went into his apartment. I remember feeling nervous and unsure about whether I wanted to move forward sexually after all. I tried to deflect and delay with random conversation, but before I knew it, we were kissing again and on his bed. He asked me if he could perform oral sex on me, and I nodded yes. He took off my pants, and I started to feel disgusted and uncomfortable, but continued to play along because, is this not what I wanted? He rapidly pulled out his penis and said that he couldn't get me pregnant because he had a vasectomy so that protection wasn't needed. I remember squeezing my vagina so that he wouldn't enter me, but I didn't say anything to stop him, and he kept going. When it began to hurt, I asked him to stop because I was a virgin. We then kissed and rubbed a bit more, and I asked him to take me home. Almost immediately, I felt a mix of adrenaline and mortification about what I had done to my sister. I also began to freak out about having had sex for the first time. He texted me the next morning about how amazing it was, and I texted back in agreement. I decided that I was going to die with this secret and remain silent, but as time passed, the silence felt like it would kill me. Several months after this encounter with my brother-in-law, my sister confronted me. Her husband had admitted to her that we slept together, I denied it because I knew it would destroy her family and ours. I also hadn't begun to process how I would define that encounter. Things remained fairly quiet for close to a decade, but internally my light grew dimmer and dimmer. The incident marked every one of my sexual encounters that followed with shame. The level of sorrow and guilt I felt in the years that followed, in which I had a series of encounters in which I slept with men I had no desire to sleep with, was nothing short of devastating. I was always under the influence, and the experiences always bordered on date rape. As time passed and I repressed the memory, what happened with my brother-in-law looked and felt more like rape. In truth, I began to think of the encounter this way because it was easier to be a victim instead of a sick traitor. At the same time, thinking of myself as a victim offered comfort and it resonated with my internal anguish. I remained silent about the incident for years except for vaguely referring to it as sexual abuse to close friends. Finally, when I told the story to a therapist because the shame was consuming all areas of my life, it was a rape story. I added small details, like him pushing me on the bed, that reframed the narrative from one that was a gray area encounter to undeniably sexual assault. Once I had this affirmation, about a year ago, I told my mother, and then I told my sister that my brother-in-law raped me. My announcement created chaos, but it was also a huge release. Of course, my sister, who was still married to her husband, didn't believe me, but she was tortured enough by the possibility that she had him take a lie detector test, which I think was really pointless. My sister and I met up several months afterwards because I wanted to fight for our relationship, and she pulled out the results from the lie detector test to prove that I'd lied about being raped. I told her that perhaps rape was not the right word, but that I did feel taken advantage of. Her response was simply, men will go as far as you let them. She also said that she was insulted that I called it rape since she is a survivor herself. She asked me to stay away from her kids and her family. We've been estranged ever since. She has every right to be upset with me. I've grieved the irreparable damage to our relationship and the sorrow that I've caused her. To make matters worse, I received a text from my brother-in-law saying, I forgive you, and I forgive myself. Uh, can I get an apology? I feel as though they are using my ill-advised and ill-willed description of the narrative, my lie, to bond and protect him. They're using it to deflect from his wrongdoings and heal together, while here I am, having lost my sister and my peace of mind and body. I want to be accountable and move on, but I also don't want to discount his actions and reward him. I don't think confronting him would be productive because of his narcissism and my fear of being further shamed. I had feelings for him and initiated much of what happened. But sugars, I wholeheartedly believe that something important was taken away from me by my brother-in-law. He's known me since I was seven. He was the 33-year-old married man when I was a 22-year-old queer virgin." I feel like I was tricked and coerced by his manipulation and charm. I feel like he used me to seek revenge on my sister. I relive that night like a deep trauma often when I'm having sex with my partner. I circle through the scenario in the middle of the night. Am I a coward and liar who's hiding my accountability behind victimization or am I a victim? In light of the massive Me Too movement, I think it's so crucial to acknowledge stories that fall in the gray area, to reshape the culture around sex entirely, and to acknowledge that consent is sometimes not black and white. Sometimes it's messy as hell. Would I call it rape now? I don't think so. Signed, stuck in the gray.
0: Wow. Very intense letter, and we're going to discuss it after the break.
1: Cheryl, when you first suggested that we do this letter, I just thought it was so chaotic and there was so much in it. And I just had this natural feeling of like, oh, it's about consent. But it's also about this particular family system. Mm-hmm. And, but what makes this letter so uh, painful and important to talk about, I think, and stuck in the gray, the reason that it stayed with both of us is that this set of decisions that you made with this man and didn't make maybe— um, is literally to this day haunting you. And I think it's such an important thing to recognize that it's not something that resides in people's past. And I think we have this um, uh, sort of very, our efforts psychically to protect ourselves, sort of we want to put the past in the past. But when you feel you've been violated, whatever we call it, in this core away, it stays with us it infiltrates our family systems, and it really, as you've written so eloquently, infiltrates your mind and your body.
0: Yeah, I think it does all that. Plus, it it really illuminates the many uh, complexities and contradictions uh, that are inherent in these kinds of sexual interactions that that make us think, okay, was that sexual assault or was it not? Am I, am I a coward and a liar who's hiding my accountability behind victimization or am I a victim? And, you know, this is something that we hear over and over and over again um, from people who have been victims of sexual violence or assault or abuse or non-consensual uh, sexual encounters. It also shows us very clearly that there are many ways to interpret the same story, right? Yep. And even stuck in the gray, you have done that yourself over the course of your life. Yep. Okay. There's one version of this encounter with your brother-in-law in in which, you know, you're the adult, 22 years old, we call that an adult, and you initiate a relationship with your brother-in-law and a sexual encounter that you do not uh, explicitly object to. And that looks like consent in one light. Uh, There's another version of this where you look back and, really understand that you've been raped, that that this was an abuse of power on the part of your brother-in-law, and that you didn't have the capacity uh, to give consent, and you weren't explicitly asked for consent. And then there's that third story that I think by letter's end, you're sort of landing on, which is, can both of these stories be true to some degree at once? And if so, how do we account for a crime that's happened that's not a crime, a trespass That's not legally a trespass.
1: Yeah. And I think uh, one of the reasons this letter is so fascinating is that it really complicates the paradigm that we have in our heads, which is um, a binary victim abuser. Mm -hmm. And, And this is a letter in which you can say aspects of that do apply, but it would be more accurate to say that everybody in this situation was in pain and that everybody was acting destructively, Mm -hmm. self-destructively and other destructively. Um, Human beings struggle with their impulses, and in particular with their sexual desires and their emotional needs. Because you've set it out in a very clear-eyed way, we can see that you are struggling with your queer sexuality, your identity, and you have... Feelings of great admiration and trust in this older brother figure who represents to you a kind of model of a healthy monogamous relationship or right um, and your brother uh, is struggling with having his heart broken and being unmanned literally by his wife running off with another man, and this sorrow and confusion makes you strange bedfellows mm-hmm. and your desire to draw close to him and you're initiating a kind of sexual relationship is oftentimes what people will do to um, gain the attention and a deeper sense of intimacy with somebody who they're very drawn to, whether they see them as a protector or somebody who can help them creatively or in their careers or even emotionally or psychologically. Um, We have a culture that says that the way that women get attention and intimacy um, and And guidance in some way emotionally or psychologically, or support is by offering their bodies, yeah, and that will give them access
0: well and there 's also a really strong culture as we we talked about this last week with jacqueline of of if you give consent to one thing you 've given consent to everything right. and you know I really want to say to you, stuck in the gray, that it does make sense as steve points out you 're twenty two years old you 're questioning everything you're you 're a virgin, so you 're very you know you 're not sexually experienced. And you're in this situation where you are, are you know, really having intimacies, emotional intimacies, with somebody who you've admired for a long time, and and this is, I think, why um, that memory of my own came up when I was thinking about your letter. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do want to point out there there is obviously a very big difference in that I was 13 yeah. and you were 22, but I do want to say you were a young adult. You were a uh, a, a, an adult that was, who was very much in a transitional stage of moving from from adolescence to adulthood. And your brother-in-law had a power that he may not have consciously realized and that you may not have consciously perceived, but was very much there. And I think that the, the piece of this um, that I felt most strongly, the thing I want to say to you, is something important was taken from you okay you 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 asked this in your letter, you know I feel like something important um was taken away from me by my brother in law and and I want to affirm that it was, and ultimately, you know his job in that moment of your life when you looked at him and said, I kind of have a crush on you was to gently tell you no right and and the fact that then he allowed you to turn that into a sexual moment, he allowed you to take him to the basement and kiss him, and he kissed you back. That's a violation. He violated you. I mean, we have, um, you know, really some questions that stuck in the gray you've you've presented to us. And that is, am I a coward and a liar who's hiding my accountability behind victimization, or am I a, v- a victim? And I would say, you know, you're neither. Um, you're a person who had something really complicated and difficult happen to you. And you are absolutely um, right in calling this out as something that was a life-altering experience and something that really, um, that you in some ways were victimized by somebody's lack of consciousness, lack of awareness about the power he had.
1: What's fascinating in in how the encounter plays out is that there are particular moments where uh, you disappear stuck in the gray moments where you're taking the initiative, you're a person and you're there and you're thinking and feeling things. In this case, I want to kiss him. I'm going to take him down to the basement. Um, But as the action heats up and it becomes more intense, it's almost as if I can see you sort of receding behind a cloud of confused feelings. He persisted and soon we went into his apartment. Before I knew it, we were kissing again and on his bed. It's as if like in a movie, there's a sudden dissolve mm-hmm. from one to the other, and it's a kind of disappearing of the self that speaks to the absence of affirmative consent, right? Whether it's from confusion or reluctance to say, I don't want this, generally speaking, the female disappears,
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, and suddenly things are happening to her body that she doesn't consent to, but she doesn't out loud object to, Um I also think there is this very characteristic split in how you feel inside and what you do, not just during the episode, but afterwards. He texts you, that was amazing, and you don't text back, actually, my feelings about it are not quite, they're amazing, they're much Mm -hmm. more complicated, and we need to discuss this or something. What you say is, yeah, that's right, I'll allow him to live in that myth, let me start to try to take care of his feelings. Um And that disjunction is also characteristic of so many sexual interactions where we're feeling one way, um, but we're afraid to say it. And I think right. everybody listening to this should think about, have I been part of a system where I simply thought about my own needs and not about what the other person wanted?
0: You know, one of the things stuck in the gray that I'm struck by is you feeling stuck in the gray as if the gray is actually the the undesired space and what i really want to suggest is maybe the truest way to make any sense of your situation or the other situations that have been presented to us steve is that the gray is actually probably the more honest place yeah um i think that the problem is in your letter stuck in the gray is that you keep going back and forth in the black and the white right maybe the gray is actually is the the, the place that's going to set you free. Because the black is you're a victim of rape and your brother-in-law raped you. And what you keep doing when you you tell that story is you keep backing away from it. You keep saying, you know what, that's not really true. That's not really how I should characterize this because I initiated it. I said yes. I wanted um, certain things with my brother-in-law. Okay, so rape isn't quite true. It's also not quite true... That it was was just two people who decided to go have sex with each other. Okay. So that's also not true. The white is also not true. What is true is the gray is that you thought you had volition that you you didn't have. You entered into a a sexual encounter that you then wanted to back away from, but didn't have what it took, really. I mean, you didn't, you, you couldn't say no, even though you were feeling no. And... Your brother in law, who should have explicitly asked for consent, should have read some of those cues, didn't have those skills either. Right. You know, now, does that make him a monster? No. Does it make him responsible and accountable for harming you? Yes. But I think here again, you're not going to, uh, I think, put this haunting to rest, this conflict in your family to rest until really all of you can start to more. Uh, fully embrace this notion that there there isn't going to be one clear narrative that exonerates everyone from culpability right. or demonizes everyone. That's right. Everyone.
1: And I want to say that I always say to writing students, you know, what is nonfiction? Well, nonfiction is a radically subjective version of events that objectively took place. Mm -hmm. Okay. And once you start consciously making things up, you're still doing imaginative work, but it has a different name. It's called fiction. So at the moment that you reframe the narrative by saying that he pushed you on the bed when you know that not to be true, that's a lie. And we need to be clear in saying that's not what happened in that room. Um, you know, we should be cognizant of the fact that you framed an encounter that in his mind he might have thought of as consensual um, and and might not consciously be aware of how manipulative he was and how coercive he was. You reframe that and made up events that accuse him of a crime for which he could go to jail. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, that doesn't mean what he did is OK. It's not. But it does mean that you also abused your power in terms of telling the story and telling a story that, you know, was not a full and honest accounting of it. It made me think of this short story by Antonia Nelson, one of my favorite stories in the world, called Stitches. It's from her collection, Female Trouble. And the reason um, I want to read a little bit of it is because it's about a young woman who's, uh, you know, uh, a teenager, uh, but 17 or 18. She's a college freshman, and she calls her parents and tells them she's been raped. She tells them she's been raped by her one of her professors. But as her mom is talking with her on the phone, it it becomes much more complicated. Uh, The girl, Tracy, initiates the action, asks to go back to this guy's place. He's not really a professor. He's a TA. He's several years older than her, but he's only in his early 20s. It gets more complex. It gets more gray. Mm -hmm. Darling, uh, Ellen shivered. Ellen is the mom She could not help imagining her daughter's naked body there before her as if in time-lapse photography, the grinning chubby baby, the naked little girl splashing in the bathtub, the adolescent who ran on tiptoe from shower to bedroom with a towel clutched under her arms. Tracy, that's the daughter. Tracy said, so that wasn't actually rape, was it? And her mother says, no. And Tracy says, no, it was more like, and then she can't find the word, and her mother says, consensual? And Tracy says, not exactly, more like a car wreck, just out of control. Okay, honey, out of control. And he said his waterbed might have a leak. Waterbeds, Ellen recalled. I thought those days were gone. It sloshed, Tracy said, like being in a boat. So that's the way this interaction is described. It's like she's at sea, right? And Mm -hmm. consent is shifting underneath her. And then Ellen, her mother, says this, Ellen asked for the whole story. She had only one policy with this girl, frankness. I'll be the most angry if you lied. It had seemed obvious to Ellen, the truth. But many people, in fact, did not want to know it. And that is really where I land on this. Uh Inside of all these, especially an interaction like this that is so complicated, it becomes impossible. You get stuck if you can't be honest about it, honest to yourself and honest to everybody else who is a party to it in some way. And I think stuck in the gray that you are trying very hard, valiantly really, to get to the truth of what happened in this experience, because you know on some level that if you don't, you will be stuck in the gray forever.
0: I think that's very true and insightful, that this this idea of interpreting all of these experiences over the years, if, as you've grown up, stuck, and and come to consciousness about the meaning, really, of all of these things that have happened. You know, you are in search of the truth, and that's that's on your side. And I do want to point out that your sister is too. And I think sometimes when we're estranged from people, we can feel um, not only that we're, you know, in opposing camps, but that we interpret every action as oppositional. And I picked up on your frustration and disappointment with your sister uh, when she had her husband take a lie detector test. You say, you thought it was pointless, but really, I interpreted it very differently. I saw your sister really, actually trying to say, maybe this is true. You know, maybe my husband uh, raped my sister, and I want to know. And that tells me that she wants to know the truth too. And and what I would encourage you to do um, is to try to, as much as you can, um, invite your sister to sit in the gray with you. Um, I don't know if it's advisable. It doesn't sound to me like you want to do any healing with your brother-in-law. But certainly, it, it you know, as you say, you grieve the damage in your relationship with your sister. You're sorry and sad about the harm that you caused her. And I think that she is too. And I think right now you're both a little defensive with each other. Um, I do really encourage you to try again to to do that thing you did before, where you reach out and you have that discussion and you try to... Um, really talk about that gray area. Yeah. We wish you luck. We sure do. Hey, listeners, we have one more episode on this topic coming up next week. We'll be discussing sexual harassment in the workplace. We hope you listen.
1: Dear Sugars is produced by the New York Times in partnership with WBUR, our producer is Alexandra Lee Young, our editor and managing producer is Larissa Anderson, our executive producer is Lisa Tobin, and our editorial director is Samantha Hennig. We recorded this show at Talkback Sound and Visual in Portland, Oregon, with our engineer, Josh Millman. Our mix engineer is Brad Fisher. Our theme music is by the wonderful band Wonderly with vocals by Liz Vice. Please find us at nytimes.com slash dearsugars. You can send us your letters at dearsugars at nytimes.com. That's dearsugars, plural, at nytimes.com. Or leave us a voicemail on our hotline at 929-399-8477. And please check out our column, The Sweet Spot, at nytimes.com slash Spot.